Fat Girl podcast is sponsored by Beringer Engelheim Animal Health. Recombitech four-way lepto combos are the only vaccines that prevent leptospirosis and urinary shedding for three common leptospirosis serovars and are the only vaccines to provide a 15-month duration of immunity for leptospira gripotyphosa. Ask your Beringer Engelheim Animal Health sales representative for more information on Recombitech leptospirosis vaccines. Hi, Vecrol here today with Dr. George Moore, who's the Director of Clinical Trials and Professor of Epidemiology at Purdue University College of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Moore, thank you so much for taking the time to do today's Vecrol podcast. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. So what I wanted to talk to you about today was the prevalence of leptospirosis. We're seeing a little bit more in Minnesota, where I'm based out of, and I know you're based out of West Lafayette. And so I wanted to talk to you about a recent paper. I guess it's not so recent anymore, but it's a paper called Signalment Changes in Canine Leptospirosis Between 1970 and 2009. And this paper was published in the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine back in 2014. So first of all, what made you guys decide to publish this data? Were you guys seeing a specific change at Purdue? Well, we were seeing a couple of different changes, and one of those was, as you had noted, an increase in the number of patients presenting with clinical signs consistent with the diagnosis of leptospirosis and then subsequent confirmation of that diagnosis via the appropriate test. So we were seeing more leptospirosis. But then we were seeing those cases not in what had classically been taught or presented from, uh, say, the 80s or the 90s and so on, but rather which was the presumed signalment or a typical signalment of a young, large-breed dog would go outside quite a bit, perhaps a sporting breed and so on. Rather, we weren't seeing a dog like that. We were seeing small dogs. Our these are dogs were not vaccinated, obviously, therefore at risk. But this was a major shift from thinking that you were going to see a large breed, a sporting breed, an outdoor dog, versus the smaller dogs that were primarily viewed as indoor dogs. So that prompted us to change. We were also hearing of that similar signalment as seen by infectious disease specialists and internists at other universities, too. So suggesting that this was more than just some random change, we elected to try to document that using the veterinary medical database and data received from uh, participatory university veterinary teaching hospitals. It's interesting because I went to vet school back in the early 90s, and it was the same exact thing. We were taught it was the roaming farm dogs. And so interestingly enough from your study, it looks like it was dogs less than 15 pounds that were presenting more. Now, do you think this is related to changes in vaccine status or uh, increase in urban dogs that are exposed to rat urine? Or what was your hypothesis on why this was changing so much? Well, that's a very good question regarding what is the hypothesis. I don't know whether we'll be able to fully assess cause and effect. As you had mentioned, uh, what was taught in the 90s was actually information that had been produced from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, even work produced out of Purdue. Uh, Dr. Michael Ward, Dr. Larry Glickman, and Dr. Lynn Guptill had collaborated and looked at those pieces of information. And as they had seen what was most common and, in essence, the abstract presented what is most typical, it was heavily slanted towards dogs from the 70s, even though it implied 70s, 80s, and 90s. And there was a marked decrease in the amount of leptospirosis diagnosed at veterinary teaching hospitals in the 80s 
there was some increase early in the 90s, and then it began to climb more later in the 90s. So that presenting information heavily slanted to the 1970s, and as you said, presented as the large breed dog, the farm dog, or the roaming dog. Now, the question became then, what presumes this change, and could there be a change? Obviously, we have to have some environmental pressure, some risk that's out there. If the disease, the organism, is not present, we would say present in the environment or at risk via probably water sources, urine-contaminated water sources. If we eliminate that risk, then we're not going to have no patients diagnosed. We could still have an environmental risk, but if we have everybody vaccinated, as ideally we do with viral diseases like parvo and distemper, then in spite of an environmental risk, we would not be diagnosing clinical patients. But rather, we were seeing an increase. In fact, our paper documented not only the signalment, but the overall presence, uh, prevalence that was being seen over those different decades. We had already noted that in the 70s, the predominant serovars that were seen and included in vaccines were the canicola and nectarohemorrhagia. And again, everything pretty quiet in the 80s. It's a little uncertain as to why that occurred. Was it because vaccinology of the 70s was very easy? Dogs received a DHL, distemper, hepatitis, and leptospirosis with a rabies vaccine. So two shots, as it were, the combined DHL and the rabies. Virtually every dog got that. There were some issues with the lepto vaccine as produced at that time. And some people subsequently stopped administering the leptospirosis factor. But nevertheless, the disease frequency declined. And interestingly, not only did that decline within dogs, the public health information out of CDC suggested that there was a decline in human cases also. Now, I don't think those are dogs transmitting to people, but a suggestion that perhaps environmental risk was also declining. So that decline was such that CDC took leptospirosis off of its list of nationally notifiable diseases by state departments of health, removed it from their list in 1994. But in the 90s, if we look at the veterinary literature, we were seeing an increase. Case reports, as talked about by Dr. Craig Green at the University of Georgia, spoke of increase in cases that were now CIRVAR as previously seen in livestock, those of Gripotyphosa and Pomona, but now seen in dogs and not necessarily farm dogs either. And thus, that change in the risk by serovars led to the increase, or change, I should say. It's an increase in serovars, but it was a change from a two-serovar canine vaccine to a four-serovar canine vaccine. In fact, the 2011 AHA canine vaccination guidelines do not recommend two-serovar products. And in fact, those are uh, not as commonly available even on the market. A 4-serovar leptospirosis vaccine is the norm currently. Nevertheless, as we look and we have a change in vaccine, we are seeing an increase, and the data as shown in the article showed that veterinary teaching hospitals, university teaching hospitals, were seeing twice the number of leptospirosis cases in the 2000s compared to either the 70s or the 90s, and much more so than the 80s. And again, what was causing those increases? 
Well, we saw it among varied breeds and varied sizes, but more commonly, as you said, in dogs less than 15 pounds. By breed group, more commonly in dogs of toy breeds or terrier breeds. And in those, these were in dogs that were unvaccinated. So we felt, those of us as co-authors, felt that we must be having an increase in environmental risk and we have a more naive population, perhaps due to decline, perhaps due to concern, decline in environmental um, or perceived environmental risk, perhaps due to a concern for vaccine reactions, pressure by breeders and their information sheet, do not use these vaccines, etc. Anyway, veterinarians were not using leptospirosis vaccines. And so we were seeing an exposed and susceptible population, again, particularly in small breed dogs. And those were the dogs that we were seeing at university, dogs that were ill, in some cases succumb to the disease, even in spite of a very intensive measures to try to save them, and even in spite of appropriate antibiotic therapy. It's very interesting with the increase that we have seen that CDC also has subsequently recognized an increase in human leptospirosis cases. And in 2013, CDC placed leptospirosis back onto its list of notifiable diseases nationally by state departments of health. It takes a while for the states to make that change. It takes a while for this data to be accumulated. And it certainly takes a while for physicians to think and recognize this as a disease. I think the public health issue is a major one in the sense of importance as we have a vaccine preventable disease, but it certainly has transitioned for physicians from an occupational disease seen by farmers, seen in uh, veterinarians, to actually a recreational disease. There were reports in different decades of large number of people participating in outdoor recreational activities like triathlons that had a swimming component and others. And so in an exposure to uh, freshwater sites and so on, a number of participants would have leptospirosis. Now, maybe those were coming from environmental sources, but we were also seeing an increase in the city cases too. Even in February of this year, 2017, they had three cases of human leptospirosis diagnosed in New York City, one of which was fatal. And uh, to my understanding, that was icterohemorrhagia cerevar, which is endemic within rodents or uh, rats, uh, Norway rats, in that population. I think for our small dogs and others, there is going to be a risk in two ways in the environment. Certainly, if you're near an urban area or you're at a location where you have a rodent infestation, certainly risk to ictrohemorrhagia is very much a concern. But now you can live outside of downtown. You can live in suburbia, and it appears that the risk is coming from peri-urban wildlife. We have done a small study here at Purdue a couple years ago, and we looked at uh, raccoons. And even though only half of the raccoons, we evaluated 34 raccoons that had been caught as part of a wildlife project, is that even though uh, only 45% of them were serologically positive for leptospirosis, 100%, all 34 of the 34 raccoons 
carry leptospirosis DNA in their kidney, suggesting that this organism, which likes to live in a reservoir host, has now become host adapted in the raccoon population, at least in our area and probably in other areas too. So again, peri-urban wildlife, particularly where you have a large species like a raccoon that can contribute more urine into the environment, or either by rats, which a single rat may not contribute as much, um, but in urban areas there can be large numbers of those. So both of those represent sources of leptospire contamination that can get into a water source. So we think that those are the contributors, and again, we have a naive population as veterinarians have restrained, for different reasons, restrained from vaccinating for this disease. Again, a public health hazard, but they have restrained from vaccinating for this disease. Bring up some fantastic points. That's actually my excuse for not running those outdoor tough mudder races. I, I tell people I don't want to get camp left or lepto. <laughs> so now you're right. You're right. Yeah, it's too dirty. Now, with that increased prevalence, the question is to vaccinate or not to vaccinate. I know that it's not necessarily a core vaccine now, and I know that the vaccine companies have ultra purified the vaccine. So the incidence of adverse effects from it or, you know, quote, allergic reactions are much, much lower than they used to be. But based on your signalment paper, are you changing the patient population that you recommend get vaccinated? Well, we would recommend uh, that for all dogs, for both public health reasons, and we think the risk is uh, out there in, in most of the parts of America. I can understand perhaps if it wasn't made core from a concern that the driest parts, desert parts of the United States, the highest elevations, um, perhaps of the Rockies or some areas it may not be found. Uh, and I can understand how for a shelter in a constrained financial environment, use of killed products that require two injections is not as cost economical for them or cost effective. And I can understand where their higher priority is the modified live distemper or parvo and, and perhaps bordetella and trying to get those in for immediate protection and leptospirosis is, is uh, a lesser efficient vaccine. So I can understand why in those regards it would not be core, but to our everyday pet that we typically see to merely ask, do they go outside? Do they not go outside? Here we've documented that it could be potentially of risk even in an urban high-rise environment like in New York City, uh, and it can be also in a suburban environment. So in my mind, having a disease that is at risk um, in most environments in the United States and is also of a potential threat or concern that if left undiagnosed, unnoted in a dog, we could have potentially a risk for transmission to people, then to me it's common sense that that should be a core vaccine. I do agree that having noted from some work done by researchers in the 19, or sorry, in about 2005 out of Japan, that they had noticed that some or many, albeit not all, leptospirosis vaccines carried a fair fairly large amount of bovine serum albumin, that that uh, paper became very important in waking up industry to the potential role of excipient proteins in inciting immediate type hypersensitivity reactions. And indeed, I agree that most companies have worked to improve filtration methods, 
bovine serum albumin, the albumin molecule is fairly large molecule, like 66 kilodaltons. It's ionized, so it should be able to be removed. It doesn't remove all bovine proteins that may be present from fetal calf serum and present within the culture media for leptospires. But nevertheless, it removes some of the major ones. And so ideally, we're seeing improved products and reduced risk of allergic reactions from vaccines such that by making this a core vaccine, we ideally are not increasing the risk from that as a product alone. We should not be negligent of the fact that any vaccine can carry a small amount of excipient proteins. And therefore, we don't want to presume that just adding more vaccines into that little patient's visit is is an okay thing. It's not going to make a difference. No, as we present more antigens to that little dog's immune system, we can push them, particularly if genetically predisposed, and we would suggest some breeds possibly are genetically predisposed to allergic reactions. Those could include dachshunds, pugs, chihuahuas, and so on. And so if we have the dog genetically predisposed, we don't want to push the threshold of tipping them into an allergic reaction. So having better vaccines, very important, but maybe still limiting to two or three the number of different vaccines that might be administered in an office visit. That can still be very prudent. Great information. A couple other things I wanted to ask you about. Do you think general practitioners or veterinarians right now are diagnosing lepto appropriately? I guess, you know, there's so many tests out there with the PCR versus the MAT test and these newer ELISA tests. I was just wondering, you know, we don't always think of lepto when we see that acute kidney injury patient. And I know at least in the specialty clinic that I work at in in Minneapolis, St. Paul, we're seeing just acute kidney injury without any kind of hepatopathy. So what patient population that's presenting with clinical signs should we be testing these dogs for? And what is your preferred test for testing for lepto? That's an excellent question. Uh, And one of the challenges in diagnosing the disease is having the right suspicion. The right suspicion, obviously, potentially keyed by the type of patient. We do want to change that mindset uh, as we're talking about today. But then regarding what is the disease presentation in any patient. And now is where we have the problem when Dr. Craig Green has talked about this disease, leptospirosis. He entitled one of his talks, I recall, Lepto is a Great Pretender. And the idea that it can have varied presentations in different types of dogs. So certainly probably the most common presentation, but not in the majority of cases, but most, so maybe about 40% of cases or so, 40 to 45%, will be acute injury, acute kidney injury only, AKI. And with that, more commonly, oliguric or aneuric renal failure. Yet interestingly, we have diagnosed cases that look more like chronic kidney disease. They are polyuric cases. Leptospires, their outer surface protein, their outer membranes, can secrete an anti-ADH hormone, anti-antidiuretic. So like a diuretic, so their collecting tubules cannot re-pull back, cannot resorb all that liquid. And so the solute just keeps rolling out through the system, got to go, got to go, got to go. And so it almost looks even, if not uh, in a young dog, a diabetes insipidus case, or an older dog, a chronic renal failure. And so within that, even a polyuria case 
could even be leptospirosis. So kidney only, that's the most common form. And then second is a little bit somewhat classic or pathognomonic for lepto is, as you said, a combined kidney injury or liver injury together. In fact, even as a senior student, when we taught at the University of Tennessee long ago, I can remember Dr. Jim Brace, my instructor, telling me that in the face of disease that can affect both the kidney and the liver at the same time, your number one differential in infectious disease should be leptospirosis. But again, that's the secondary presentation. So we had kidney only, kidney and liver. Then we can even have liver only. An article out of the University of Pennsylvania uh, reported that about 15% of their cases, lepto cases, were liver only. Leptospirosis has been diagnosed as a cause of chronic active hepatitis in a group of dogs. More typically, it's seen as a cholangiohepatitis with an increase in alkaline phosphatase chemistry values, more so than ALT chemistry values. So again, we can have a jaundice patient and a high bilirubin within that, but it's again a cholangiohepatitis. But we even see some variations such as fever of unknown origin, uveitis by itself. Uh, and then there is a recent article also out of Georgia in which some young puppies of varying breeds and about nine to 16 weeks old were hit in a septicemic-like condition, although subsequent examination of the kidney and liver did reveal leptospirosis. Again, we don't think of that as much as a puppy disease, and I don't think it's all that common, but again, a different presentation. So we have to be alert to this as the great pretender, and certainly with kidney disease, it could be in the dogs that you want to at least have it as a suspicion. Now we're back to the other part of your question, which is what is the best test or what should we do in testing? And this will depend quite a bit on where we are, quote, in the middle of the movie. If you're the primary care veterinarian and you are seeing this case early within the onset of clinical signs, then a PCR test of urine or blood can be sensitive and specific within the first three to five days of illness. Now, if you're the polyuria case, which has been going on for three weeks, that urine may be very dilute. The PCR of the urine may actually be negative. And so and we would not expect that there would be PCR in the blood, uh, positive findings, leptospiremia, would not think there would be at that time. Then if it's been going on for some time, I by then, or after five days or so of illness, we'll begin to see serologic conversion in the the value of a serologic test can increase. And whether those are an ELISA bedside test, lateral flow assay test, as recently has come out with these semi-quantitative tests, or whether it's the more numerical MAT test where I get a report by Cerevar from a laboratory, again, a single test alone can sometimes be difficult to evaluate, even though we're a week or two past the onset of clinical signs. Having paired test, a negative test followed by a positive test is probably the most confirmatory method we have in the serologic realm. So I remember seeing a recent study where it said that 45% of cases that were diagnosed with leptospirosis weren't confirmed until the second convalescent titer with a MAT test. So what advice would you make with veterinarians who are using that first MAT test 
as a quote unquote negative or should it change our therapy and what we're doing? Right. And that's a good question because sometimes if taken too early and you get a negative, then you're not thinking through immunologically the process and rather go, well, I don't have leptospirosis. Oh, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. I told you we didn't have lepto. It's not lepto, et cetera. Well, we just haven't given the immune system time to seroconvert. And so that's a piece of background information, that first test. And whether or not, again, we do it by the bedside or the in-office test or whether we do it by a send-out and MAT, having that piece of information can still be effective if we can pair it up with another test, ideally 10 to 14 days later. Sometimes we may not get enough conversion only in seven days, and I would hesitate to just separate by one week the two tests. I would rather separate them again by more than 10 and better 14 days. So within that, you still want to have the suspicion of the disease. You recognize that this is still a public health issue and recognize that because it's a differential, then the use of antibiotics is appropriate in these cases. Uh, Again, if the animal can take medication orally, then doxycycline is effective over a two-week period. And if patients ever are sick from either the kidney or the liver disease and nothing is taken in orally, then an injectable product where you could now use a penicillin derivative, such as an ampicillin. So that can be done to also take care of the acute phase disease. That would be followed by doxycycline too. So we would still have public health concerns, perhaps a sign on the cage. I have, parentheses, or may have leptospirosis. Be careful about contact with urine or urine-soaked materials. And so keeping our staff protected in that fashion, and then also then the appropriate use of antibiotics, and then following on with another test. Sometimes it is prudent for us in the follow-on test where we're wanting a follow-on recheck examination anyway. We've had a fair amount of organ dysfunction. I mean, we may be wanting to recheck either the liver enzymes by chemistry or a BUN creatinine by chemistry. And at the university level, approximately 20% of these leptospirosis cases may actually retain chronic renal damage and chronic renal failure. Even though they've been discharged, they survived and been discharged, they can move to a chronic renal state. So Again, BUNs that are holding in the 60s or 80s or even 90s, and so just starting to push those in which I'm just not feeling so good, and we have to have fluid therapy and so on. So those are challenging cases, challenging in managing chronic renal failure in cats and challenging in toy breed dogs too. And so within those, if I'm needing to recheck organ function, it's a good opportunity to do the second serology test also. How many days of doxycycline do you recommend treating for in patients that you have a high index of suspicion of lepto? Yes, 14 days has been shown to be sufficient, partly because the organism um, has an affinity for endothelial cells, and so it likes the renal tubules, it likes the vascular endothelium, it likes the biliary tract, and so it's not hiding in obscure areas. So duration and a dosage such that we're getting uh, good good therapeutic levels, um, it's fairly easy to eliminate the infection. Great point. I know for my own dog, I vaccinate him for DHPP every three years. I do an annual Mm -hmm. exam every year, but even I vaccinate him for lepto every year just because I'm at the 
at the head of the Mississippi and he loves to swim and we have a ton of lepto in Minnesota. So I always tell people so important, especially when you're referring cases to always keep that pre-treatment blood or urine, just in case it turns out to be a lepto patient that you want to be able to submit a PCR on. And a lot of people always say, or ask me, and I'd love to pick your brain on this, how many doses does it take before it affects our PCR or before our patient is no longer shedding and posing a risk to our veterinary staff? Right. That's a good question. It, uh, and there hasn't been a lot of, of work that's been done on that. The assumption on antibiotic treatment is that antibiotic, particularly uh, the organism, is very susceptible to these uh, antibiotics that we're using. And so even within 24 hours, uh, we're making the belief that a leptospire may be, still be shed, but it will not be a viable or infective organism. Definitely by 48. So we would, you know, within 48 hours, very comfortable. 24 hours, I think we still have a, should have a high degree of comfort that the animal is no longer infective to us. So that would be the the window that we would look for maintaining more adequate control, uh, public health precautions, et cetera. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Really appreciate some great lepto information. Any last tips you want to leave with our practitioners who are listening to this podcast when it comes to leptospirosis? Well, I'm just thankful that we've had the opportunity to make practitioners aware. We're all busy and we don't always able to pick up pieces of information. I don't know, again, how many folks had been aware of the concern even at the national level, the human level by CDC. I don't know how many people had been aware of the changes within Signaman, although they may ha have uh, picked up some cases. But as I sometimes say, you may not think you're seeing leptospirosis, but it's quite possible leptospirosis is seeing you. And again, I think our concern, my concern is that the environmental pressure will maintain itself if this organism is maintained in reservoir hosts that we have, such as uh, peri-urban wildlife and others. And within that, uh, the, the threat will be there, and we just need to protect our dogs from this potentially fatal disease. Great information. I know Tucson, Arizona, which we would never have thought of as a moist place um, that mm -hmm. has a high risk for lepto is undergoing an outbreak right now. And so again, just like you said, can be anywhere and really important to educate our pet owners about this. Well, Americans like things to be green. And so we still install sprinkler systems. And that not only makes the lawn green, it attracts the wildlife um, who would love to have a water source. And so not only uh, do they come to frequent it at times, but obviously our pets do too. So you're right. Um, I think it's uh, it's one in which we're sometimes held held bound by things we were taught from school some time ago, and we just haven't caught up with the changes that are occurring out in real life for us. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Moore. Such great information. Again, if you have a dog... It's those small dogs around 15 pounds that are increased in the prevalence when it comes to looking at the signalment for lepto. So don't forget all your patients that uh, are at risk. Thank you again for doing this Vet Girl podcast and really appreciate it, Dr. Moore. Thanks so much.